Rural hospitals and healthcare providers are constantly facing new challenges as the healthcare industry changes and as regulations shift. At the same time, legislators and federal agencies need to hear from rural hospitals if any new action needs to be taken for their benefit or if coming changes will impact them. So, how do rural hospitals and healthcare providers keep their interests top of mind for decision makers in Washington? With direct communication, personal engagement, and the support of advocacy experts bringing forward a collective rural voice. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 77 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. Well, Rachel, we've been pretty busy here, and uh, advocacy has been heavy on our minds. Um, not only looking at some of the changes that are happening in Lansing, Michigan, which is our capital, uh, conversations uh, with our state representatives, with our senator at that local level, um, but that doesn't stop there. In fact, uh, we are represented federally, and uh, that takes a lot of time as well, doesn't it? It does. Uh, We have been doing a lot on our own here in Michigan lately, along with our state hospital association. Um, But for our federal interests and and, um, challenges as well, we fortunately have the tremendous support of our national association, whose policy experts keep us informed. They're advocating on our behalf, and they're also helping us find ways to advocate directly. So today we have a great return guest who happens to lead those efforts. That's right. And, you know, we, we concentrate on you know, when we're faced with Michigan uh, issues, Michigan Hospital Association, we've had Brian Peters, uh, MHA president, uh, on this program before. And in fact, I'm on the MHA board and have spent a lot of time advocating for rural hospitals. But, you know, really what warms my heart is when we can bring to the studio uh, experts uh, who mm-hmm. are working uh, at the federal level, which takes on a whole new understanding right. when you start talking about federal legislation and how that impacts rural health care nationally, you know, state level, state impact nationally. So our guest today is Carrie Cochran McLean, Chief Policy Officer for the National Rural Health Association. We want to welcome you again to Rural Health Rising, Carrie. Well, thank you so much, uh, JJ and Rachel. It's my pleasure to be back with you uh, today and talking a little bit about uh, rural health care policy at the federal level. So, Carrie, to start, for those who may have heard episode, I think it was 53, that you were on uh, before, but uh, might need a little refresher, or for those who have not met you before here on our podcast, why don't you give a quick reintroduction of yourself um, and a little bit about your background and your work at NRHA? Sure. Um, So I, as um, JJ said, am with the National Rural Health Association. I'm um, I help to kind of develop and implement our federal policy efforts um, for kind of all of rural health care. So we spend a lot of time talking about um, provider and facility issues, but really also represent the patient perspective, the public health perspective, a broad range of efforts here um, at NRHA. Um, My background, uh, I had the pleasure when I first came to Washington, D.C., many moons ago now, um, to work in the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy with the fearless Tom Tom Morris and team, and Mm -hmm. then um, stayed in the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Mm -hmm. really focusing on access to care for underserved populations. 
Yeah. And I worked a lot with NREJ in that capacity and um, have the pleasure of coming over here um, to focus my efforts a little bit more, I think, from the direct kind of provider patient voice here at NRHA. So, you know, now that we've established who you are in what you do, uh, let's start with the why. Now, we did this last time, but we want to do it again to remind our listeners what motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning. So, uh, Carrie, what is your why? My why. So, um, and apologies if I said this last time, I can't remember what my why is. So this is an interesting um, <laughs> comparison. Well, it um, shifts and changes over time, right? And sometimes yeah, you right? see it from a slightly different perspective depending <laughs> on how your day's going. That's right. Yeah. Um, so my why. So I am originally from Montana. Um, my family has spent, I am the fifth generation of my family to be um, living in Montana at some point in our lives. And um, I just have a real passion for thinking about um, what life is like in those rural communities and making sure that people have equal access to rural health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I love my job because we cover kind of the whole gamut of everything from the minutia in Medicare reimbursement to the really big um, kind of public health infrastructure kind of questions. Um, And I get to work with really fantastic people out in our rural communities and feel kind of their support um, as we go forward in our day-to-day efforts. You know, Carrie, let's get into some meat here. Um, Obviously, there are some hot topics uh, facing rural hospitals right now across America. Uh, We do know that since 2010, the number is well over 140 hospitals rule uh, have closed in America. And the projection by Scott Becker on this very podcast just a few months ago was that hundreds are at risk of closing across the United States in the next one to three years. Very sobering thought uh, when you give consideration to lack of access for health care. Um, and, you know, we just attended your monthly grassroots advocacy call a few weeks ago, but uh, we did learn a lot about what's happening at the federal level. And I, I was just hopeful that you could share a few issues you and your team are focused on uh, these last few months of the year and maybe talk a little bit about how that changes and what what's it feel like in Washington, you know, as we get ready to end a year and Obviously, and also an election year. year. Yeah, yeah, election year. We yeah. do know some were defeated already. Um, and so what's what's it feel like and what are you working on? Could you share that with us? Yeah. So this time of year in Washington is um, so uh, it's I was saying um, earlier to JJ, it's kind of like you're eerily um quiet and busy all at the same time. So we um, know that uh, Congress just took a break for about six weeks of recess, um, which will take us up into and really through um, the midterm elections. So while it's pretty quiet around here um, on the sidewalks and on the streets, but um, There's also an awful lot of communication and work that's being done as we anticipate uh, the big kind of end of year legislative vehicle being discussed when Congress returns from the midterms. So lots of interest in kind of what's happening with elections. Um, As you may have heard, uh, there are all sorts of um, kind of Uh, pundits who anticipate elections going one way or another. Um, Right now, the rumor is that um, 
or it's anticipated that the Senate will um, be held by the Democrats and that the House is likely to um, turn over to a Republican majority. But that's all up in the air. And yeah. um, how are end of year uh, activities both the FY23 appropriations or federal budget package, as well as a number of non-budgetary provisions that are anticipated. The question of how those move forward um, and what our strategy is really depends a little bit on those midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, obviously, you're nonpartisan. So, are, you know, can yes. you can you frame for us what that looks like? I mean, that's a tough tough balancing act at times, isn't it? Uh, and now you have some you know, folks who are angry that they weren't elected. Um, maybe they were working on a specific piece of legislation for us, for rural health. Does that change whenever there's an election like that? Or is it pretty, they're just going to carry it forward? Could you give us, uh, what does that yeah. dynamic look like? Yeah, you know, um, we are, you're right, we are nonpartisan or bipartisan, depending on kind of how sure. you think about it. We work with both sides of the aisle because in all but just a very few um, of our states, there are rural areas. And so yeah. our goal in working um, with Congress is to find out what the broader issue um, our member of Congress is um, interested in and figure out kind of how we move the needle within um, that kind of rural portfolio. So mm -hmm. we do work with both sides of the aisle and both kind of extremes within both sides of the aisle. Um, and we have champions in both of those buckets. And so there always is kind of a turnover in terms of our leadership um, on some issues when we have an election. But sure. we are lucky that because most states have rural communities, that we have lots of strong voices for healthcare and rural healthcare in Washington. And um, we are in the process of not only trying to get some of our priorities passed before this Congress um, ends at the end of the calendar year, but thinking about how we gear up um, for the next Congress, the 118th, to do mm -hmm. kind of that education and introduction of important rural bills. Can, can I talk real quick about that process? So do you have a program, a introduction for new congressmen and women uh, in terms of what they can you know, expect from your association or what you can shed with, you know, any light that you can shed with them? So can you talk about what's January going to look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have... Um, a number of ways that we kind of work directly with members of Congress and their staff. Um, we are, as we anticipate um, kind of changes in Congress, and I should say both new members coming in, but also members changing committees. So they may mm -hmm. all of a sudden be on a health-related committee and, and it may be yeah. um, kind of need to like refresh on certain mm -hmm. kind of issues that they haven't thought about in a while. So we um, are anticipating hosting briefings for um, members and staff on rural issues, honestly, throughout um, the 2023 year. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. we'll do some early education for those brand new um, members, but really working to strengthen and reestablish and kind of um, uh, um, kind of recommit on rural with a lot of our partners we also are really looking to stand back up our Rural Health Caucus and Coalition um, in the House and Senate, which is the gathering of kind of members who have come together to talk about 
or share an interest in rural health care and thinking about how we can get those kind of reinvigorated in the 118th Congress. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that um, early in 2023, uh, we um, host our annual policy institute, which is an opportunity for folks to come to Washington, D.C. This year, it's February um, 7th through the 9th. And we at that event will host members of Congress, members of the administration, as well as work with you to set up one-on-one -on -one kind of direct meetings um, with your state companions and cohorts um, to talk about the issues that are pressing for you. So we're getting geared up for that Good. Policy Institute in February, which is also a huge way that we communicate and connect with our members of Congress Great. early on in the in the term. So that's exciting. Yes, it is. Yeah. I know last year, uh, it was last year, right, that it was virtual because I participated in some of the calls you with did. our That's right. congressional delegation, um, but didn't get to participate as much as I would have That's liked right. because we had so much going on we here uh, with COVID at the time. But I am looking forward to that. Yes, so it's going to be we, fun. Or at least I will be there this year. I don't know about you, JJ, but I'm going. So. You're going. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. I love it. Um, so, so let's talk a real quick. This I know has already um, passed, but can we talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and what its impact is and will be on rural hospitals in particular? Yeah, great question. So you probably or your listeners probably are very um, familiar with the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the kind of being known for some of its climate related provisions. Right. Um, but there were some important pieces in there for healthcare that uh, we want to make sure people have on their radar. So thank you for this ask. Um, one of the biggest pieces that we heard about was around kind of prescription drug um, coverage and the changes that occurred there. So there was a, an overhaul of Medicare Part D, which is the prescription drug component of the Medicare program. Um, there, there were a number of changes in this space, but um, they basically allow Medicare to start negotiation of drug prices for kind of high cost drugs, um, meaning that both the cost of the drug will be lower for Medicare as well as the beneficiary in their co-payment. Um, those negotiations can start, um, I think as early as next year, but they won't actually kick in until 2026. There's also a number of other kind of um, incremental changes that'll be happening. Things like caps on the amount of out-of-pocket payments or cost beneficiaries will be paying under Medicare, um, uh, expanded subsidies for Medicare Part D or prescription drugs under Part D, um, and then some cost sharing, um, for especially around vaccines for adults. So some really significant changes to how Medicare pays for drug costs, drug pricing, for our um, rural seniors. There also was an extension of the Affordable Care Act subsidies under the marketplace. So this, are, this is for folks who are buying their health insurance coverage under um, either a state or federal marketplace kind of plan and support for them to pay for those co-pays and deductibles. There was a three-year extension of those subsidies. Um, so that's gonna help a lot of rural folks who um, are getting their coverage that way. And then last but definitely not least, um, we were very encouraged to see recognition of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Development Programs mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. some support for them to strengthen and stand up 
um, the work they do. Those programs are so cool because if you talk to them, they basically can go into a rural area and build an entire community based on the range of services that they provide. Um, and they're a huge resource for rural communities, both in terms of some um, kind of broadband telehealth, but most importantly, capital um, resources for hospitals and others. So we were happy to see some support for them in this bill as well. Excellent. So one of the items I have kept a very close eye on uh, is the low volume adjustment for Medicare dependent hospitals. And Mm -hmm. that's us, uh, obviously, in a very Mm -hmm rural poor community where 70% of my payer mix is Medicaid, Medicare, uh, this has significant implications to me if we do not receive it financially. Um, So, you know, could you give us an update? I know that it had been extended. We heard on the call with you uh, through December, but is this going to be codified into the law? What What are your thoughts on this for hospitals like ours who are listening to this podcast? Yep. Great question. So the um, Medicare dependent hospital and the low volume hospital designations, as you mentioned, JJ, are um, designations under Medicare that for hospitals that um, typically they're not made permanent. So that means um, Congress on a somewhat regular basis has to extend the authority for CMS to offer these payment adjustments to facilities. And to your point, they are, you know, there's 140 um, Medicare dependent hospitals and almost 550 low volume hospitals um, in our rural areas across the country. So very important designations. Um, We were very happy to see that um, this was a program that was set to expire in September on September 30th. And so we were very happy to see that Congress included an extension of this program in its short-term continuing resolution it did for the budget. So we know with certainty that those those, um, designations will continue until Congress picks up the mantle again on December 16th to talk about what the end of year kind of full package looks like. So in the past, that hasn't always happened. And it's been kind of a mess because you have to like retroactively figure it out with the Centers for Medicare Mm -hmm. and Medicaid Services. And so that in itself was very exciting, I think, oh, just yeah. from a logistic standpoint or process headache standpoint. Um, but we do feel very, um, very hopeful, very good about kind of the continuation of those pro- those designations. Um, you know, I would hope for a five-year period of time. I mean, we always advocate for that to be a permanent designation. If we can't get that, we'll go for as long as possible in order to provide as much continuity to you all and security to you all with that designation. So I'm hoping a five-year continuation. It may be a three, depending on what our Congress mix ends up looking like and what they have to negotiate down because all of it has a cost, right? And that's figuring out what those high level numbers and how much they're willing to spend is always kind of the the secret sauce in this process. Yeah. You know, let me ask a question, follow up to this, Carrie. So what would be the objections that a party would raise to the low volume adjustment? So we have a kind of a, a grasp or not. Is it just because of the spending? Uh, the cost no, associated. I would say the vast majority of the time it's just because of the spending costs, the yeah. additional costs. And yeah. the hard part about that is when you look at the overall spending of healthcare in this country, 
or even mm-hmm. just the Medicare program, if you want to kind yeah. of narrow it a little bit, so to speak. Um, the amount that we spend on rural programs and rural designations is so small compared to the mm-hmm. biggest bucket. Mm-hmm. And yet um, there's, you know, and your guess is as good as mine, but there tends to be or we can run into hesitation around creating kind of exceptions to the process that would that would change how you know, you're paid. So in this situation, I feel like part of our job, a big part of our job is just the education around why we need these designations and what's happening Mm -hmm. out in our rural areas and why these hospitals need the additional support in order to keep their doors open. Um, And that's why folks like you are so important to help us tell this story to your members of Congress. Right. Right. And so what does this mean for because there are I know there's a a Senate bill and a House companion. One of them is the Save Rural Hospitals Act Mm -hmm. that would make those designations permanent. Right. And what is what does this mean now that now that we have the extension in the continuing resolution and then hopefully in either a continuing resolution at the end of the year or an omnibus bill? um, What does that mean for something like the Save Rural Hospitals Act? Is that one of those things where, well, it was in there and it's been continued, so we're not going to worry about it until it's in jeopardy again? You know, because obviously from from where we're sitting, we're like, can we just not like forget about that just because we got a temporary extension? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Do we do we have to keep going, you know, on this roller coaster um, all the time at the I don't want to say the whims of Congress, but based on, you know, what's going on in in Congress every couple of years? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, just to your point, Rachel, when we think about um, how uh, these end of year bills happen, um, and I'll back up to say it really feels like with the with the rare exception, and obviously COVID was a little bit different because of the crisis that the nation was in. Um, a lot of the bills that we're seeing now are these very large end of year tied to appropriation, what we call kind of Christmas tree bills, um, partially Mm -hmm. because it seems to always happen around the holidays, but also (laughs) because it's like everybody gets an opportunity to put their kind of specific priority onto a branch, right? Right. So we see a lot of times when we're um, introducing legislation like um, HR 6400 and our um, Save Our Rural Hospitals Act, We'll introduce um, what I almost call like our wish list of rural hospital fixes Mm -hmm. and then work to educate folks on that full bill. And then when we have opportunities like this end of year kind of um, package, really lift up those things that are at the most at, at the peak crisis level. So obviously the extension of these Um, designations is one of those. One of the other top priorities we have right now is relief from the Medicare sequestration, which is a 2% cut to Medicare. Mm -hmm. And then the PAYGO sequestration, which is a 4% cut, um, getting those waived. um, And the sequestration was also part of that Save Our Rural Hospitals Act. So part of it is introducing a bill and socializing it and educating folks about it and getting supporters. And then part of it is the strategy to get it in one of these big packages at the end of the year. And the other one of the other big 
issues that we have talked about a lot. We did just talk about it with our um, state legislators when we were in Lansing doing some advocacy. What was that last week? The week before? Yeah, week I can't before. even week before. Remember now? Um, of course, I say that all the time. People probably think I just don't even know like what a calendar or a clock is, which is might it? be true. What year is it? Um, 20, I did love 20, the 90s. Can we go back to oh 22? Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> anyway, but but one that we talked about, there was a bill introduced recently at the state level mm-hmm. in Michigan um, to help with some regulation for travel nursing agencies. This is something that yes. we in particular have been very yes. passionate about and also concerned about because um, you know it kind of looks like there's been this. Um, price gouging happening uh, during a historic crisis uh, in our country. And it just doesn't really seem like it's been getting the attention it maybe should Mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there was, I can't remember if it was introduced in February or in August, or maybe there was an update in August, but I know there was something put forward um, that would have required some sort of study related to um, what travel nursing agencies did during the pandemic and how they profited and how those profits profits were used um, compared to, you know, how much of that went to the nurses that they were employing, how much of that was, you know, back into the pockets of the agencies um, or their, you know, higher level folks. But do we have any updates on any sort of either federal regulation or federal attention to this issue? Because even today, you know, in one of our our meetings, one of our leadership meetings, we were talking about, you know, Anytime there's more turnover, we always have that risk of we might have to bring on more travelers again. Um, and that that cost is so significant for us um, up to I think we've paid up to four times for a travel nurse per hour what we would pay for our committed mm-hmm. nurses who are here and are invested in our hospital and our community. Mm-hmm. Um, so stepping off my soapbox, I think I stepped on a little bit there. Preach it. Um, <laughs> what, what's the latest at the federal level on this issue? Yeah, that's a, another good question, Rachel. And um, you are not the only one on that soapbox. I feel like mm-hmm. we have we actually just had a listening um, session today for a request for information that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is doing around equity and some of the public health emergency kind of flexibilities. And I feel like three quarters of the feedback we got was all around workforce. So mm-hmm. it is a challenge that I think across the board, rural communities um, it, it are struggling with and, and, and mm-hmm. facing. Um, the traveling nursing piece, you're right, in terms of the federal level, uh, the the bill that was introduced back in, I think it was, yeah, like June maybe, um, the Traveling Nurse Agency Transparency Study Act did request yes. or require that the government accountability, which is kind of like the the program auditors for for Congress um, that Congress is able to deploy to look at federal issues really looks at the effect of travel nursing and and what happened during COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. I think the challenges um, beyond this bill, I haven't heard of a whole lot of conversation in Congress on a federal solution. So many of these issues are kind of state by state. But we are very much continuing to look at a couple of things. One, how the costs associated with the increase in salaries and the inflation um, pressures that facilities are facing, like how are we addressing that and paying for that through our Medicare program um, and putting forward comments to CMS and working with the administration on that. 
and trying to get some relief there. And then the second piece of that is just continuing to think about what we do to support the nursing and more broadly healthcare workforce um, development, retention, placement uh, in our rural areas. And I think the end of year, I've talked about some of the quote unquote, like non-budget related pieces of the end of year package, but a mm-hmm. big part of that this bill that's coming up is uh, funding for our discretionary programs in um, the federal government for fiscal year 2023. And um, within that, we have a number of priorities around workforce, um, both core programs like the National Health Service Corps and the Nurse Corps that help with the distribution of providers into rural communities, but Mm -hmm. then also support of kind of the Title VII nursing programs at HRSA, as well as the Rural Residency Planning and Development Program that creates the infrastructure for us to be able to train people in our rural communities at our rural facilities, knowing that if you train there, you're more likely to stay there. there, So it's a Mm -hmm. multifaceted kind of approach. I wish there was one answer to all of this because it is um, it is something that's causing a lot of pain, but we're kind of trying to hit it at a lot of, from a lot of different um, levels here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as my peers are listening to this podcast across the United States and uh, for many of our rural hospitals, participation in 340B is significant. Uh, to me, initially, a couple hundred thousand, but the forecast for us as we engage more and more rural health clinics and engage in other opportunities, it's growing. And, you know, it's upwards, uh, potential upwards of a half a million dollars just for my small rural hospital future state. So, you know, there was a ruling at the end of September. Yes. I can't remember. I, I got to go back and look at it. Yeah. Um, I, I think wrote favor. that and then I can't remember what yeah. it was. But it, it, it was in favor of hospitals. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's. Oh, oh, I think it had to do with um, immediate repayment of any unlawful cuts to 340B. Is that right? Right. There was a there was a a suit in which we had a victory. But I I guess from an advocacy standpoint, this is a big one, right? Yeah. So a couple of things. There was a lawsuit that was settled in the fall. Um, The big piece there. And Rachel, you were right. It's um, a while back. 2017, maybe ish, um, Medicare uh, changed outpatient hospital payment um, to reflect what they considered to be kind of a double discount um, for those entities that were filing under 340B. That was overturned. And so there was some uh, rural or some um, proposed uh, policy in the outpatient PPS Medicare hospital reg for next year to kind of make folks even for those cuts. So NRHA mm-hmm. did did comment on that and and those like impacted facilities will or should mm-hmm. be seeing um, a change to reimbursement next year to reflect that. But to your bigger issue, JJ, I mean, yeah, 340B, what a mess, man. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is it a complicated program, just across the board. Um, We, as you know, I'm sure, and folks listening to this program know, there have been significant abuses by drug manufacturers as well as um, PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers Mm -hmm. in terms of taking advantage of the limited federal oversight the program has 
And that oversight, unfortunately, is limited by statute. So HRSA, if they want, even if they wanted to do more to regulate the program, um, they don't have the authority to do it. Mm-hmm. And in that absence, um, manufacturers and PBMs are really employing some very discriminatory um, practices. So we kind of have a, uh, we've had a three-pronged strategy on this. One is to do what we can to work within the administration's authority to get them more funding to do some of this work if to their ability. And then where they can, asking them to kind of revisit their capacity, <laughs> um, yeah. revisit mm-hmm. some of what they can do. Um, and well, they ask good. us to do that all the all time. The yes, time. they do. Right? So, you know, um, yeah. it's yeah, only so fair. They've been good partners on that. Um, yeah. But also, um, we have a bill right now, the, uh, the Protect 340B Act of 2021, H.R. 4390, that looks specifically at the um, pro- prohibition of um, discrimination against providers who are um, part of kind of the um, contract pharmacy um, yep. piece of the program. Yeah. That I think we're hopeful. We're pushing for that in our end of year, that end big end of year package. We're, um, you know, I don't know. We're really hopeful. We're pushing it hard, but um, mm-hmm. we'll see what will happen with that. I think aside from this, it's we're we're starting to have a really serious conversation with others um, at the national level about kind of what the longevity, long term longevity of this program is and. Um, anticipating that we will probably be having lots of conversations in the 118th about legislative changes to the program um, and thinking about how what that looks like um, and how do we write those in a way that really protects and engages our rural safety net providers, hospitals, um, you know, our FQHCs and others who are providing important services in our rural communities, knowing that pharma and others have a really strong lobbying um, presence in Washington. And so uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be a, a interesting kind of um process as it rolls out over the next year or two, but we do anticipate seeing some kind of new legislation built around this and really wanting to make sure that rural is protected as we move forward. Excellent. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're getting to what they call lame duck session, right? Mm-hmm. This is where we kind of come to an end of the year. And so I guess what would you expect to see before the end as it relates to appropriation bills? Anything that you're keeping an eye on, anything that you see really is applicable to rural health that you're like, uh, 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 if we do, if we don't. And I guess the question is, what are you pushing for? Yeah, so a lot. Um, for In terms of that broader end of your package, we mentioned a number of the things already. So we're talking right. about um, relief from the Medicare and PAYGO sequestrations so that um, rural providers are getting their full Medicare reimbursement. Not necessarily more, just no deductions from their existing. We talked about a number of the rural Medicare extenders, um, both the Medicare dependent and low volume hospital designations, but also important Medicare payments to our ground ambulance services. Um, There is an additional payment to recognize the challenge of EMS in rural areas, and that also is expiring. So asking for extension to that. Um, Mm -hmm. We also are looking to make permanent a number of the flexibilities we saw 
in the public health emergency related to telehealth and specifically telehealth in federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics. I know my colleague Josh talked to you all about that um, earlier this year, but those were hoping um, while we have a little bit of a reprieve of those post pandemic or post um, public health emergency, we want to make those um, provisions public um, permanent 340B. I talked yep. about that. So we really want to see the Protect 340B Act included. And then last but not least, I think to your point, JJ, depending on how the midterms go, um, we will either see a bill before Christmas or before the end of the, I should say, the end of the calendar year, or we're going to see people try to push that into January, February, March so yep. that they can have more influence on what the bill looks like. Right. So we're talking about right now we're a full like Democrat um, controlled Congress. Mm -hmm. But if that changes in the elections, you're going to see people kind of jockeying mm -hmm. over timelines to see mm -hmm. how much mm -hmm. influence they have. The other piece to watch, as we're, especially as we're talking about the budget right now, the the budget proposals for 2023. So all of our, again, discretionary programs that budget is looking really good and it looks really good for rural and we're very happy. There's been increases in a number of our key programs that support rural hospitals, support workforce, support kind of that public health community-based infrastructure. But most of those numbers have come from, um, they've been democratic, what they say markups. So it's come from a democratic majority house. Um, it's come from the president and it's mm -hmm. come from a democratic majority um, Senate. So, Really, we don't know where the Republicans stand on a lot of these numbers. And mm -hmm. if one of them takes control of one of the houses or both of the houses, those numbers might change a lot. So that's part of the reason we are still continuing our advocacy here in Washington, because even though it's a quiet six weeks while everyone's out campaigning, we still want to make sure that our priorities are front and center because we just don't know what's going to happen after the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, we are looking forward to uh, doing some advocacy ourselves in Washington, D.C. Uh, next month. And I'm so excited that we get to see you guys while we are there. Very excited. Um, no. So we're looking forward to that. Yes. Um, but with everything that we've talked about today, I know you mentioned the Policy Institute, which is in February. Um, but in addition to that, what are some of the best ways for rural hospitals to engage with your efforts on all of these issues? Yes. Um, so PI, Policy Institute, is a great opportunity to get that face-to-face -face connection if you don't already have it with your members of Congress and come learn about kind of where national leaders are in terms of rural health. Um, I would say the other thing that we're asking for people's help with is this big end of your push and helping us. Again, you probably have heard me say um, myself and the team here in Washington, we can talk till we're blue in the face. Hopefully, we're getting through to members of Congress, but you as constituents have so much more power and influence than I think folks realize. So we need your help in getting that message across um, to Congress. So around kind of National Rural Health Day, which is November 17th, um, I actually think we're probably going to do that week after Thanksgiving. We are going to do a series of virtual fly-ins, virtual meetings. So folks can really do a push on this end of your package, because depending on what happens um, post-election, we don't know um, 
hopefully a budget is passed before we all get together in February. So we want to make sure we're not missing this magic window in the November, December timeframe. And we want people in Washington to hear the rural voice. So we're going to be doing a big push on social media and on our website and through our regular communications about how you can help us send materials to Congress, um, talk to your members of Congress over Zoom, email, kind of whatever your preferred communication is. But again, just helping us lift up our voices. And we have materials we've developed and talking points and all sorts of other things to hopefully make that easier for you. And um, Rachel and JJ, I can get you those links if you can post maybe Great. with the podcast yes. if it's appropriate. Please. Yeah, we'll um, put those in the show yeah. notes for yes. sure. Perfect. Okay. So that's probably the biggest. But, you know, the other thing I would, I, I keep saying I'm going to end and then I just keep going. I do this all the time. People. <laughs> the last thing so I will mention is the six-week window that we're talking about right now between now and the mid and the midterm elections, or I guess it's not quite six weeks anymore, um, is a perfect time to connect with your member of Congress because yes. they are at home, hitting the ground, shaking hands, chatting with folks visiting places. So invite them to come visit your facility, attend a town hall where they're talking and bring up your issues. Um, mm -hmm. Again, our website, we have templates for how to do those invitations to, for, to members of Congress. Um, you can find on their websites kind of where they're doing the town halls, but take advantage of them being local to put your issues in front of them. And because a lot of them are up for election or re-election or they're out campaigning for their friends, they're in that space to really be um, accessible to you as, as voters and constituents. Well, Carrie, believe it or not, our time has expired. And How is that possible, talk, JJ? We, we could talk for hours. <laughs> we could talk for hours. We could. The passion, that, the passion that you have, Carrie, is second to none, maybe near Rachel and mine, but <laughs> it is truly second to none. We've watched and we've heard you and we've seen your work and you and your team do a phenomenal job at advocacy for Aww, hospitals thanks. just like Hillsdale. And so thank you. Thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for your hard work. Uh, going to congressmen and women and advocating for people that you really don't even know, uh, but you know the similar challenges that we face in rural America, you know, the the access issues and the tra transportation issues and all of these things that from community to community have a, have a tie. Um, but thank you on behalf of Hillsdale uh, Hospital, on behalf of Hillsdale County, and for those who are listening nationally for all rural health care, for the work that you and your team do every day, to advocate and advance rural health in America, again, it is second to none. Uh, and we thank you for your time and your commitment there and on this program. And we're hopeful that we will have you back for a third time. Would that be Love our it. first guest ever for three? Um, You know, I think we have another guest maybe oh, that um, has been three times. Will either has or is about to oh, be. Okay. But I will say my plan, as long as Carrie is okay with this, is or that we have DC. her and or Josh on every uh, two or three times a year to kind of yeah. give us those updates on what's going on at the federal level. Right. Um, yeah. And who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll maybe try to do DC. something when we're in D.C. We'll oh my just gosh, happen to do so a fun. remote podcast. That yeah. would be awesome. Oh. We'll that would see. be awesome. <laughs> so thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. We've appreciated the time that you've spent with us explaining the dynamics. Uh, and we would just encourage our listeners to contact your congressman uh, and let them know where you are today as it pertains to rural health and the advocacy help that you need. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. We want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life. Or maybe your second most, because we did uh, ask you this did last we? time. Okay, so. all right. So <laughs> I, I can't remember what I, I mean, talked about last time. I, I think, think it was something about a bear. I think it was Oh, tipping. that was going to be mine. A, yeah, um, okay. Let's see. Uh, yeah, I feel like all of mine are like wildlife related. It's all right. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's Montana, so, right? I know, right? So I will say one of the very earliest memories I have is we, I grew up across from a federal national recreation area. And we had a neighbor kind of over the mountain, over the hill that was an outfitter and would do like out, you know, backpacking, horse packing trips. And I remember one time his um, horses got loose and somehow made it over the mountain and um, all congregated in basically our yard and this big open space to our yard and looking out as like, you know, a little kid and seeing just what looked like a whole field of wild horses was uh, very inspirational. That's awesome. That's um, awesome. So yeah, apparently I have a lot of animal related. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you are Montana, so it's I not am, like you're yeah. New York. So right. well, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Carrie, yeah. thank you for sharing your memorable story and thank you so much for the work you do. And we're hopeful to see you again here and to interview you hopefully in Washington in the next month or so. So thank you for joining us. Okay. Take care guys. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.